0: Welcome to episode 17 of the Pilot's Journey Podcast, where we discuss aviation, maintaining proficiency, and enjoying the journey. My name is Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, a private pilot and commercial student in North Dallas. And my name is Stuart Stoll,
1: a.k.a.
2: CFI Stu, a certified flight instructor in Fort Worth, Texas. And my name is Mike Hart, a.k.a. Mike Stu, a private pilot, aircraft owner, and IFR student in Idaho Falls, Idaho.
0: So Mike, you're a student still. No checkride this time?
2: Uh, well, I I did have a check ride. I just have the opportunity to take that check ride again. Uh, I I had a lot of nerves, and to be quite honest, I mean the the reality is I I I need to needed more practice, and what just really wasn't ready for that day to be uh, doing the check ride. We had uh, I and I have a there's a lot of factors. I uh, again first I'm just going to say I just really really wasn't ready, uh, and in part because. Uh, the way I had learned and a lot of things I had done when I was training was just getting to know the Garmin 430. And it does so many cool things, the way you can input procedures, uh, the way it helps you uh, maintain and gain situational awareness. And the reality is when you go up with the, 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 the flight examiner, you're you know, In some ways, there's an expectation that you're not going to be using it as a primary instrument. You're really using it as the backup, as a secondary. And it, It's not that he even said you can't use that, but there's this certain unspoken thing. You're supposed to be flying it off the needles. And I really didn't do practice where the last, you know, I should have, before I uh, went to the uh, check ride, I should have just been flying strictly off VOR needles, and I would have n- noticed that my skills and understanding of, of flying the procedures without the Garmin and without making it do the work, uh, weren't quite up to snuff. So I, I definitely blame being a little too obsessed with the, the Garmin 430. And, and going back, I was listening to some of our earlier podcasts. I think uh, had I listened to CFI Stu, I think I would have known that I was going to hit that one. <laughs> it's Oh so I'm going to be in the shout outs portion then right Oh yeah absolutely <laughs> you know what's funny is now listening it's like it was after I failed the check ride and so as a result I'm listening it's like he told me that if I was listening he was basically saying all of this stuff my gosh this how <laughs> anyway it's, it, it, so yeah I mean it, it, uh, my, my 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 advice uh, to any listener is Listen to CFI Stu when he's go back and listen to two or three episodes ago of his advice on uh, preparing for a check ride. If I would have done, done that before I went to my check ride, I would have done a much better job. But I think. uh, Well, I I wanted to say that the bits
1: of wisdom that I have when it comes to this—I mean, I don't want to not sound humble or anything—but the stuff. the things that I have learned to teach students, I have learned from watching students make the mistakes. So I can tell you, you're not the first person to make this mistakes. I have seen uh, countless people fail their check ride ch- exactly what happened with you, the nerves, and maybe they were too focused on the GPS, et cetera. Um, it, it happens to a lot of people, and the only reason I... I can give this bit of advice is because I've, I've seen people do the same thing before
2: in the past. So right. I didn't know to look for that. So, so apart from being uh, overly obsessed with the the Garmin and and I've been doing every single, er, every thing I've done since then in terms of practices, basically uh, treating it as though, you know, I I did pass the, uh, the RNAV approach, so I don't have to do an RNAV approach again. So that's one thing that's, that was uh, is checked off the list but in in essence he really wants to see me fly the the a couple more approaches and, you know i don't think he's just going to even though he could just go up and say well let's just do one approach and you're done i think the, the reality is he w- wants to see me fly and, and feel comfortable that i'm ready f- to be a, uh, signed off uh, as an so, ifr so
1: so have you did you do any emergencies in the flight portion
2: uh, we did a uh, partial panel uh, and uh, Loss of, you know, so loss of vacuum, and I did declare, you know, say that I would be declaring a, a, an emergency due to loss of vacuum. The one thing, and this is going back, that is somewhat problematic is one, of, one piece of your advice that, that is good, but at the same time not available to me on my check ride was when you declare an emergency, just ask for vectors to final, and that will show that you really know how to use the system and, and demonstrate your proficiency in IFR. And the reality is uh, Twin Falls, Idaho is, it has no radar vectoring. There's no, it's an, there's control, <laughs> there are controllers, but they don't have radar. So as a result, you can't ask for vectors to final cause they can't oh, see. No. So, uh, not that I would, you know, and I knew that it's like, I can't ask for vectors to final. So when you declare an emergency, well, you're, well, you're,
1: that's, you're why, that's why, that's why, um, procedure turns are published.
2: So, exactly, I mean, exactly. So, uh, you know, uh, and and that's not really to fault you because i mean you you're all the the work you do is mostly in airports that have that and i uh, well uh, yeah it, I, I it, mostly in parts
1: texas to, where it's completely flat so you have radar coverage everywhere here in oh, texas oh that was
2: that was one of the mean things he did uh i, I i'm assuming he did it on purpose uh, uh maybe not it could just be the nature of the beast which is you know we're, i'm of course under the hood and we're doing unusual attitude stuff um actually, I think it was flying the DME arc, and then he had me go do some unusual attitude stuff. Uh, But after the unusual attitudes, I'm trying to think, he had me uh, head in to go do a a VOR hold. And uh, somewhere in there, I'm I'm trying to remember whether it was on the arc or whatever, it was when we were out doing maneuvers, it it ended up getting a terrain warning uh, on uh, on the Garmin because we were within 500 feet or whatever of terrain which of course is a distraction and all I did was go in and punch it so it would stop the warning so I I, uh, wouldn't have to deal with it. So I didn't let it bother me and I didn't certainly that was not a factor of of why I didn't pass Uh, but it was an interesting thing to observe that uh, he even uh, mentioned that that was one of the things that when when pilots get that terrain warning on their Garmin they freak out and they don't know what to do and and that's Exactly the the kind of thing that would happen that would kill an IFR pilot if if he freaks out when he gets the terrain warning uh, instead of knowing what to do that's that's not a good thing. So uh, did you
1: not did you not freak out because you just didn't want it beeping in your head or you actually had situational awareness of, of where you were
2: and that you were in terrain? I had situational awareness at least you know being familiar with that airport. Even it's interesting even though I'm under the hood. I know I'm on the south I knew I was on the southeast side okay. of the area and and that's where there are bumps and hills and I know the, where those are and if that means if I need to turn towards the VOR uh and and you know head back towards the airport because the the heading okay. back towards the airport gets you into less you know descending terrain so
1: Okay well that's great I uh, I was I was expecting that um uh after the unusual after the unusual attitudes you would have been really disoriented and he told you to go someplace and maybe you're oh. doing something wrong because you lost yeah. situational awareness because of all the all the turnings and unusual attitudes. Uh no. That, it sounds like you, you it sounds like you did that pretty well then.
2: That part I don't I don't think I, I uh, it'll be interesting. In fact, I'm not sure whether he will, will whether we'll need to do that again or whether he will have me do the unusual attitudes again or, or well, not. I mean well, he has, it's your, one of where he he has he has the option to do anything, including everything, over again.
1: Well, I mean, on your on your uh, piece of paper that he gave you after the check ride, uh, what did he list as the deficiencies? You know, I actually probably, I if you look at that, if it just
2: says the flight portion, then then who knows? Yeah, he could probably no, do. I actually need to. You know, I haven't looked at that piece of paper. It took a long time. This is one thing that it took a while to get back in the saddle again. It was a big ego boost, or or not boost, a bust. It it. Uh, you know you feel kind of defeated when that happens uh it, it i mean you certainly don't go home from uh, a, a busted check ride feeling on top of your game and all happy let 's just put it that way it, right. it's,
1: but you do just, do learn a lot
2: from it and I was you just going become say, a better pilot though and, and like, that exactly that i mean that's one thing is uh uh i definitely uh, uh, here's another another thing that that uh, and again it, it it was failed right off the 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 standard, which is, uh, you know, he he assigned me an altitude of 7100. Uh, it was starting to get a little windy and bumpy towards the end, and uh, the uh, I was flying at 7200, or I had I was stabilized and I was looking briefing what my my next uh, you know I was not behind the airplane. I was on top of the airplane, but as a, but I was 100 feet above my altitude. But the airplane was flying stable, and I needed to take I, I chose to take advantage of the fact that the airplane is holding altitude and on course to look down and get some information of the next place I was going, uh. and and as a result, I was you know I'm hundred feet above the altitude he assigned me, and I'm not doing anything to correct it. And what it amounts to is one. Of, is one of those things where in in the this my my own personal psychology is look. The airplane has settled down, it is holding it is settled at uh, you know, 7,200, and that's above the altitude I'm assigned, so I'm not falling below it. But I didn't correct to start moving it down because I wanted to take a glance at the, the hold, you know what my next steps were. Uh, and you know, I, I already know that you don't glance down unless the aircraft is pretty stable and, and holding its own. And it was. It was holding its own at the wrong altitude and yeah. that was a bust right there not correcting uh, an altitude that was off okay uh, and, and you know that, that's he said that you know why why were you, when you were flying there you were at 7200 it was stable as can be why were you not correcting to the altitude i assigned you and and the answer was, was because i felt safe at 7200 <laughs> and the aircraft was stable and i wanted to stay in front of the airplane not get behind the airplane he said that's a good answer but it's the re- the reality is you you have to show a, a in, you know corrections you right can't because have, if have a bad a bad heading or a bad altitude without demonstrating that you have it and you're doing something to correct it your failure to correct it was why uh, was one of the bust one of the reasons I uh, for bust
1: yeah because if you know you're off your altitude 100 feet and this other airplane's off its altitude 100 feet that it's not so safe anymore, right?
2: Well, there's that. And the other thing, another factor is also, uh, you know, what if the ceilings are at 7,000 and I'm at 71? My head's in the clouds and I'm sitting here not in contact. And if I was at the assigned altitude, I might be in contact mm-hmm. with the ground. And that's, you know, it's one of those things where, hey, higher doesn't necessarily mean safer because it could mean that you're, you're actually in hard IMC when you could be in uh, visible contact with the ground. So... Uh, so that was another factor. Um, and, uh, you know, I think just again, my nerves made, I was, I was over controlling the airplane. I, I had lots of pilot induced oscillations on, on, on altitudes. I was just <laughs> pitch power trim. Pitch oh power, man. Trim. Well, I, I, here, this is a few little, a couple good sides, a, a fun, fun asides. The, when I, when I was doing the, uh, uh, run up, uh, you know, going through my checklist we're at the run-up uh, holding short and re- you know i finished the checklist and so i call into tower you know 225 mike is uh ready for departure uh and the tower comes back uh, 225 mike hold short f16 on short final and uh so i get that all the time right smack in front of us is an f16 you look but you see it coming in and you can see the the vortic, vortices off the wings, blowing dust in its circles on both sides of the, the approach path coming in. That was, that was kind of like, oh, that's cool. Then he. Oh, so you, off- so you, so you got to see my F-16 that was flying up there. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm hearing. Uh, well, that's okay, what a coincidence. Okay, and then here's the. This is this is where my 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 Cessna 182 is definitely outperforms the F-16 because he went missed and you know, kept going and um, uh, left our pattern. And then uh, when I came, did the ILS approach, the ILS approach, you come down to a decision height of I think it's four, 4230 or 4250, uh, 4,250 feet. And on, upon missed, and I reached the missed approach point, which is the, that number on the glide slope. I jam it in full throttle, uh, you know, we're at full prop uh, climbing. And the, the procedure says, climb to 4,600, then right turn to a course of 020 to intercept uh, the uh, 293 radial off the VOR. Well, I, hadn't, I was starting my right turn, but the VOR is actually still in front of me. So I'm turning right. I'm, the VOR is down the runway from me, but I've already hit 4,600 feet. So the procedure says, upon hitting 4,600 feet... Turn right, climb to six thousand, and intercept this radial. Well, you have to wait till you pass the VOR to do that. Uh, by turning right uh, at forty-six hundred, I actually was heading off into La La Land. No, there's there's no VOR in front of me. It's behind me at this point, and I'm continuing a right turn, and it, it, the VOR is off to my left. Uh, so I was never going to intercept that radial, and it took that one took me a while to figure out what. You know, I'm following the procedure. Why am I? And, and then I started doubting myself. Am I getting reverse sensing on my VOR needles? You know, I started questioning everything. I, every oh, no. <laughs> things, that I, things that I thought I knew, I suddenly was, do I really know this? And it's like, no, the VOR is off to the left. Why is the procedure telling me to turn right? Because the needle's tell me it's to the left. And I finally started turning to the left, but, of course, I'm now nowhere near the course I need to be on. Um, so that was that was an interesting one just because... Uh, now I know if I go missed, I'm going to stay on that runway until I cross the VOR, but I wouldn't have known that until I screwed it up, but it's because of that outstanding climb rate. I'm climbing, I'm at 4,600 before I've got to the VOR, which is on the field, but just down, downfield a little further. So. I would
1: I would contribute it to your slow ground speed as to opposed to a great climb
2: rate. I think. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dang you! Yeah, there was. You know, by the end of the check ride, the, the winds weren't too bad and it wasn't too bumpy. But uh, by the end of the check ride, it was twenty-five, thirty knots. I think. Uh, Ooh, nice. And, uh, so it's, most of the check ride, really, wind was not a contributing factor. Uh, but we had uh, storms building in the area. In fact. One of, and that's another thing, which is my intention was to go to the check ride, uh, fly there, you know, just warm, warm up in the airplane, kind of like get loose, go fly, you know, uh, fly around and do a couple of the procedures just with my instructor to kind of get rid of those nerves. Instead, uh, you know, we we had scheduled the check ride for one o'clock, so I could do that, go there in the morning, kind of get my uh, head together, and then meet with the examiner at, at one. The, the forecast was for thunderstorms and bad weather on our return flight back to Idaho Falls. So we called ahead and said, hey, can we move that, or the night before I called and said, hey, can we move it to 10 o'clock? Because uh, the TAF is basically telling us we may not be able to get back to Idaho Falls at the, in the afternoon if, uh, if we do a late afternoon check ride. And he agreed, and so we we did the check ride, moved the check ride to ten o'clock, which means I left Idaho Falls, flew there, got out of the airplane, finished the some of the stuff I was doing for the pre flight part, and then you know then started the examination, so i didn 't really have the chance to loosen up and do what I wanted to do. My plan changed, and that threw me off my game a little bit and well, let me see last thing is uh, the we, the, the airplane itself was having a small issue, which turned out actually to be a large issue on the way home, which was uh, the vacuum regulator. Uh, it was one of the items of, uh, in a 50-year-old airplane that when they re- put a new engine in, new avionics, and new everything else, they didn't put in a new vacuum regulator or new vacuum lines. Uh, and as a result, uh, ha- earlier in the week, I'd had them rebuild the vacuum regulator, and it got our vacuum was back up to you know, four, four and a half, four and a half inches of, uh, pressure, but, or vacuum. And then, uh, on the way back, but it was really reading low. It was around four, uh, and the, and the POH fails, uh, you fail when you're below four, 3.8 and I was barely there. So I wasn't failed vacuum while I was doing the check ride, but I had huge amounts of gyro procession, which was making me not trust the gyro, which made my scan go more to the Garmin, which, gave me crosstalk cycle psycho- in my brain as to what uh, what I'm supposed to be scanning, so my scan really I really dropped my scan, and as a result, I was busting altitudes and busting headings and not not I was flying sloppy I was flying like a drunk uh, so well that that's what happens when you when you have precession <laughs> that that's now been fixed. We have a new vacuum regulator it's relocated, new hoses in the vacuum lines so Uh, I now feel much more confident with the the airplane and therefore I also know that I don't cross-check the Garmin because it does wind correction and all kinds of stuff that, you know, if you're going to fly headings off the DG, fly them off the DG.
1: Exactly right. If you're giving a heading, make sure it's magnetic instead of ground track.
2: Right. Have you rescheduled your checkride? I haven't. I need to do that. I I know I have 60 days. That was one of the things that was interesting when when I – Started looking up. So, what do you do after you fail a check ride? I wasn't. I wasn't. I never looked at that information because why would you do that when you're studying? How, what do you do if you fail? You know, I, I don't. <laughs> not, not a smart way. It, it isn't. It isn't a smart way to plan. So anyway, I didn't plan that. Uh, and what was funny was I, I. Gosh, did I find people griping about how you know really complaining about how uh, examiners failed because they were using or because they couldn't fly needles when they had that perfectly wonderful garment. And it was funny is I saw so many people doing sour grapes on that where they were blaming the examiner for their failure to fly the needles, you know. And I don't blame the examiner for that. I mean, I I definitely see where the the rationale behind it. I probably would wanted to rationalize that, you know, oh, come on, flying flying in that pink line is all you really need to do. And to be honest, it's great but you're not as good a pilot as uh, if you fly off the, the needles in the DG only, because what if you don't have that? What if, And you need to have the skills to be able to live without it.
1: Well, I still I still say, I know we had this conversation in the past, but I still say the needles are more accurate. You, well, know, you know, needle it's, flying is definitely more important. Yeah. In my opinion, at least. I know there's some of those diehard Garmin people out there. If there's sour grapes out there on some forum, maybe I'll, I'll get an email for that, but.
2: Well, the one thing I, you know, when I when I fly the garment, when I was flying this, I, I just got back from a long trip. I flew to Grand Junction, then back to Twin Falls, then over to Boise, and back. So in the last this just this week, I've flown over 12 hours. And one thing that I was doing, I, I wasn't under the hood. I didn't have a safety pilot, so I couldn't fly, do it as an IFR practice thing in 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 earnest really, uh, because I had to keep my eyes out the window. But the uh, I was looking at the, the Garmin, uh, when you're in approach mode, it, it, the sensing on the, um, you know, it gives you a digital readout of, even if you're, you know, you, if I'm flying to a VOR, there's the needle, and then over on the Garmin, you have the CDI type indicator that tells you, you know, where you are with respect to the track. And it's re- it's, it's really not picking that up off the radios, it's picking it up off GPS, you you picked a direct track to, the, to the, the VOR as a GPS track. And so even though you're, you're selected for the CDI to read the, the indicator as, as the, the actual radios, the little thing that's showing on the Garmin window display is really the GPS. And it gives you a refined version because it, when you're in an approach mode, it, it, it's telling it, the defle- full deflection is two miles as opposed to that being one needle width on the VOR. So you really can fly more precisely looking at that Garmin. Uh, but, again, that, that's still looking at the Garmin as a CDI, not looking at the Garmin for a nice little pink line.
1: Right, yeah. The, the CDI, I, um, I see nothing wrong with going to
2: the CDI page on the Garmin and navigating yeah. that way. Um, and it, but it's still truly acceptable. It, but the pink line... Actually re- it's actually reading, but that's, the CDI is reading off of a GPS track to the VOR as opposed to the radio track. And, and they don't always agree. Sometimes one will tell you it's left and the other will tell you it's right. And to be honest on that, I would actually believe the GPS track more than the radio, particularly when you're… Uh, well, right. Kind of, well, I mean, the, the distance the from the
1: VOR, to- I mean, the farther away from the VOR you are, the less sensitive the needle is. Right, exactly. So, uh, and that's,
2: so the GPS, it doesn't matter. And that, and that's when you you get those indications where it says one thing on the VOR and a different thing on the GPS track, and that's absolutely. where they can be out of out of sync. And if if you really were to ask me, which one am I going to trust? I'm going to trust the GPS over the uh, radio when I'm you know, 50 miles, 90 miles out.
1: Oh, absolutely. But I would have it turned to the CDI
2: page. Oh yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> that's all i am say. What's so funny is it's, it's like every, I think I think it must just be a it's a. a I, I I should sue Garmin, you know, for for leading me astray. That you know, they really, I almost should have a page that says, if you're practicing IFR, please don't use the instrument this way. But this is when you're when you're really flying. This is probably how you're going to use it. Oh, you know, absolutely, you know? yeah. You're gonna fly well, the pink pines, but when you're training, you really shouldn't. I mean, you really. At the same time, while I was practic- or learning it, I learned how to use all the procedures and how to make the Garmin, how to not get behind the airplane by having the Garmin help me with situational awareness by using all those things. Uh, but well, as a as, result, I as, learned all those things, but I didn't learn how to fly IFR off the needles.
1: Well, as someone who owns a 296 handheld Garmin GPS and someone who absolutely loves flying using Garmin, I would just like Garmin to know that CFI Stu fully endorses their product. <laughs> and if they want to send me a, a new... A shiny new 396 or 496, um, I would definitely era. use it. Well, yeah, or, or an airplane with dual Garmin 430s in it. I was I just going to say... I happy to to fully uh, endorse their product and, and, and I will uh, say, promote it whenever I, possible.
2: And I hate the Garmin so much, I would really want them to send me a second one because I would love to have two 430s so I have two navcoms instead of one navcom and one com. and a backup com. So, no, I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I have no complaints about it, it's, but it's one of those things where, it, warning to all IFR students, uh, learn it old school, it, it, and it will make you a better pilot. I'm not feeling like I said. I I'm glad. I kind of glad I failed it, because, or fail. And everyone keeps correcting me. You didn't fail. You just didn't pass. You weren't ready yet. And it's not a failure because you do get to take it over again. It's, so it's, uh, and I learned a ton. So I I, I uh, and I I understand. I'm definitely not. Uh, I got lots of condolence messages from folks uh, Jack Hodson Hodgson sent me uh you know keep your head up uh you know you'll you 'll get there and uh then another uh, another friend said uh you're not uh, you, there there are pilots who have passed or who've who've been busted or busted or who will get busted at some point you, you it 's hard to fly and get multiple multiple ratings and not at some point have a busted check ride so I would Just like I, to say,
1: usually it usually is at the point of where they try to get their CFI. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have no doubt you'll pass it, and you'll be a better pilot for it. So I'm, um, I'm, just I'm, don't lose your just don't lose your motivation, and uh, don't beat yourself up t- too bad. Just jump you know, back on the horse as
2: soon as fa- as soon as possible. And you know that that's that. the thing is I I think that that was the the one thing I don't I. I, I it does take the wind out of your sails. And I think to anybody who who's out there working on a private, working on, uh, uh, any, any certificate, any, any of these things that, you know, it, it hurts to be told that you're not ready when you thought, when you thought you were, and I had two CFIs, uh, send me down as, and thinking I, you know, I, and part of it was I did well when I was with them, you know, I flew really well, uh, but when I, you know, but when, when your the,
1: certificates on the line, <laughs> it's, what's
2: funny is, man, I didn't realize I was going to have the stage fright, the nerves, and 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 the, and the examiner's point was, you know, you think you're nervous now? What what if you just ended up completely disoriented and in a cloud and in mountains and and you're you don't know where to go to next? You think you're as nervous now as you would be then? He said, you know, you have got to deal with nerves. That's that's flying IFR. If you if you ha- can't conquer your nerves and and maintain and maintains good flight proficiency and situational awareness, then that, then, you know, I really need to, that, that's his, that's his personal view of why nerves aren't really a, a, a good enough excuse.
1: Right. Yeah. They, um, they really look for confidence during the, um, the practical. So um, confidence is a, a big thing. How quickly you answer questions. And um, even if you have it wrong, just, If you make them believe you're right, you know, (laughs) they just really they really look for that confidence to set the tone for the they can, you know, if you're sweaty and shaky and everything, they know that the check rides probably.
2: So going back to uh, and this is props to you again. uh, One of the things that he went over, what are the required reporting points? You know how you mentioned there are 15? Yes, there are 15. uh, You know, he, he didn't like need me to name all 15 right he right was, he was actually impressed that i got See? Ones, some of the ones i did you know like well when when weather is different than reported uh, when you know you know so i i got more i think i got more than a lot of people do because i got some of those obscure ones in there and uh, again this guy was not the kind of guy that you really do impress i mean that's maybe it's the whole persona of uh, an examiner is you know he's there to be the skeptic not to be the, the encourager saying, good job, right answer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but that was one, uh, and one of the ones that was really important, uh, for the flight planning portion was, uh, picking an alternate, uh, airport picking. And I passed this one because I kind of had a heads up that, you know, one of the things this particular examiner looks for is, or has busted people on is they picked alternate airports that were, did not have weather reporting. Uh, and if you you can't an alternate airport just because it has an approach doesn't make it a legitimate alternate because it has to have reporting weather. Otherwise, how do you know what the minimums are? Yeah, because yeah, you have that alternate minimums, have to, right? Yeah, exactly. But, how do you know you have the three, two, one, the three, you know, uh, three thousand feet, two miles, and well, 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 those aren't alternate minimums. That's that's what that's the weather you need to have an
1: alternate. It's the right, right. It's the six hundred two, eight hundred two, are the right. alternate standard alternate
2: minimums. They may have non-standard, but. So Good. that was my experience. So tell me about uh I understand uh, you had I I I learned a couple weeks or a week or so ago. I was uh I was in I, I actually remember where I was. I was I was, had walked into my house and CNN was on uh, it was like for lunch or something and and it's like and the king air is circling over uh where was <laughs> where was it circling? It was in Texas and they're trying to burn off fuel. What was happening is it, how- So People who've been listening to this podcast uh, um,
1: may remember that my house is right in the downwind, uh, actually the the downwind to base corner of 3-4 right at Alliance Airport, Kilo Alpha Foxtrot Whiskey here in Fort Worth, Texas, and it's a really large airport, and um, uh I uh, was sitting up here on my computer and my window, I have this giant window behind my computer that overlooks that whole airspace. It's a beautiful view of that airspace and I watch airplanes all day long. And um, uh, I noticed a King Air was doing pattern work and uh, I started getting Twitter updates um, and Facebook updates telling me that there's a King Air burning off fuel here at Alliance Airport because it's having landing gear problems. So I of course uh got in my car, and just went across the street to the airport. Did, was did, out you there. Your,
2: did you grab your shaving cream to help out maybe with the the rough landing?
1: <laughs> yes i uh, I quickly grabbed my my tights and my cape and uh <laughs> ran out onto the runway as quickly as I could. no uh the uh, i just I just was standing around with everyone else at the uh the terminal there at Alliance watching it as it comes in and uh, just doing patterns, bringing it off. And after about an hour, uh, it, um, you know, it, I'd probably been watching it for three hours, but, but I've been out there for an hour watching it and all the trucks and lights were out there and it came in and it, deci- it went and landed. It's, um, it has a parallel runway. It's a little bit shorter than the main runway. Uh, it's a uh, three, four left. And it came in and um, just did a, a textbook nose gear up landing, you know, the mains were down, the nose gear collapsed on landing. Um, uh, I don't really know how you secure the engines for a turbine, uh turbine prop like that, a turboprop like that. Um, uh, Cause I haven't had experience in that yet, but uh, the, it looks well, like.
2: Feathered and it, not spinning then, huh? It, they The props
1: were spinning, but I don't think the engine was on. Right. So it may have been like winding down. I don't know when he killed the engine, but the props did take, the props were spinning and uh, uh, and they the props took heavy damage. I mean, completely bent. And there's a video, I think we're going to have a video in our show notes. You can actually watch this, The uh, all the helicopters. There's um, a lot of news helicopters and Bell helicopter itself is based out of Alliance. So there are a bunch of helicopters just videotaping this whole thing. Um, <laughs> CNN, local news, everything. And I have a the local Channel 5 news report uh here for the for DFW um has the crash landing. So you guys can watch that at our website. It's gonna be in the show notes. Um but it's just the standard. It came in, scraped uh, a good thousand feet down the runway on its nose and damaged the prop, but everyone got out, fire trucks came up and sprayed it. Uh but the tell number, I looked up the tell number, it's uh it was November two zero, and it's an FAA King Air. So it looks like the FAA may be, I don't know, in need of a new King Air soon. Uh, that was very interesting. It was out there with everybody watching that happen. It was very loud. You could hear it. It sounded like a, a 737 kicking on the reverse thrusters. You know, that loud whoosh sound as it just it was scraping across the runway. And uh,
0: Well, at least so. they were close to the FISDO when it was time to report.
1: Well, the FISDO the is not there at that airport anymore. Oh, they not. moved. No, they uh, moved to DFW. They're actually at DFW Airport now. So yeah, that FISDO, the FAA is no longer at that airport. Thank goodness, because I, I was <laughs> uncomfortable with them so close. <laughs> <You> know, I, <laughs> I will not, not believe how how much my phone was just exploding with Twitter updates and, and Facebook statuses that when everyone found out that it was an FAA airplane, were just they completely uh, l- lashed onto that. Um, for some reason, and uh, decided to give the FAA what for. But um, all, all the pilots are fine. The aircraft uh, suffered some prop damage and obviously some belly damage. And um, but other than that, the pilots are fine. There's no hurry. It looks like in the video that we have in the show notes, it looks like
2: only one fire truck pulled up to the scene. Oh, that's good. I <laughs> mean, know? it's good. It's good that I mean that, that it wasn't. There was a it wasn't a huge overreaction. Well, the other thing is. One of the things I noted when you said he took the smaller runway or she, we don't know what the pilot's gender is, but... Well, uh, I think it's
1: a he. I think three males got out of the airplane. In the video, you can see it. So uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and say it
2: was a male pilot. But the... uh, the fact that they took the small runway rather than locking up the big one.
1: Well, runway, they landed on 3-4 left, and runway 3-4 right is actually approved for Category 2 ILS approaches. It's a really large runway with right. really bright approach lights. And um, FedEx and um, American Airlines have a have a base of operations here. American Airlines has a repair center, so we'll have these American Airlines 777s and Airbus and stuff will come in um from FedEx and everything and they need basically the whole length of that runway to be able to land. And um I don't, don't think I mean I'm I'm going off of just watching them land, but I don't think three four um three four left could uh accommodate those huge jumbo jets that come in to land. Um I think the runway's too short for them. Uh the so i imagine the controller told him hey once you come in on file make sure it's on this runway so we can still get the jumbo jets in you oh, know yeah.
2: i mean it's 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 the, it's the right thing to do as a pilot i mean uh, you, if you are going to be you know leaving a disabled aircraft onto a on a where you know at the end of the landing there's a high probability your aircraft will be disabled pick the mm-hmm. less active runway unless winds dictate or your situation obviously i mean Look, you got to do what's right for your own safety and not kill people. But with parallel runways like that, that was a, that was a smart call. Yeah.
0: Joining us this episode is Jason Shepard from flyingacrossamerica.com. Jason and Vincent Lombardi are preparing for an epic journey from Daytona Beach, Florida to Catalina, California, and back in a Cessna 150. Welcome, Jason.
3: Hey, Stu, thanks so much for having me, and um, I appreciate the interview. Vincent and I just do uh, so much. Uh, thank you for uh, allowing us to get our chance to uh, get our message out there.
0: Well, I hope you two get along good, because uh, that's a long time to be in a cozy <laughs> 150.
3: <laughs> you know, that's the um, that's the thing where uh, I'm not worried about it. Maybe Vincent is. I'm not sure. But uh, we're both two big boys uh, clocking at 200 pounds, so uh, we're going to become good friends, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, why don't you start off by telling us kind of your background and how you got involved in aviation.
3: Most definitely. I got started at the age of, uh, my first flight was like at 12, and that's when I really got uh, hooked on it. My grandmother used to take me out to the airport, and we would just, I mean, this is back when you could go, you know, like right up to the gate, and no one would really even say a word to you. Um, and we would just go and just watch airplanes just take off and land. I thought that was the cool. Are we didn't have our handheld radio or anything. We'd just watch them. I mean, it was just the coolest thing ever. So eventually I got my first flight in a Beechcraft skipper at uh, the age of 12, and I was hooked. You know, I just would have bug my parents constantly about when can I learn to fly, and we looked into it, and eventually I convinced them, and at 15 I started taking flight lessons and uh, soloed, when I was 16, got my license when I was 17 and just blew through my ratings, got my CFI at 18 and I just didn't waste any time with it. Um, I come from a very entrepreneurial family so it just generally led me to turn aviation into a business and um, I started out, I convinced a bunch of people to buy an airplane because I didn't have any money to buy an airplane. That's how I actually made money at first. (laughs) Um, I saved up, bought my own airplane. And, you know, flying for me, I mean, it, it's literally a, a full-time job. And this is branched off into uh, my other website, which is M0A.com, where I do uh, online flight training. And that's ended up being a pretty good revenue producer for me as well. So I'm, I'm talking about flying in real life and on the Internet and everything else. So it's, uh, I'm, I'm living a very blessed life right now. I'm very fortunate that uh, aviation has, uh, you know, been so well for me and everything. So it's great.
0: That sounds really cool. Uh, How how did you meet Vincent?
3: Well, I actually met Vincent. Vincent has the aviation blog PlasticPilot.net, and he is my uh, friendly blogging competition is what he really is. Um, Well, I
0: guess we ought to point out at this point that Vincent actually lives in Germany, right?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. Vincent lives in Germany. Don't ask me how to pronounce the town or anything like that, because I I couldn't do it. They have funny (laughs) names over there. But Vincent does. He lives in Germany. And how this all started was via Twitter. I mean, Vince and I, we used to post on each other's blogs and become good friends that way, although never meeting each other. And one day we got to talking about, you know, how expensive it is to learn to fly in Germany because of the fees, the user fees and the taxes. I mean, user fees are nothing new over there. They've been there for quite some time. But This is why we get so many foreign students in the United States because we don't have those taxes. We don't have those user fees um, on flight training, on aviation. So we were talking about how expensive it was, and I told him, man, Vincent, you know, I'm not anywhere close to the prices he paid over there. And he was just flabbergasted that you could save so much money flying in the United States because we don't have those user fees. And that's what kind of sparked the idea where he was like, well – You know, what would it take to get your airplane, you know, across the country and back? And I I really thought he was crazy at first. I'm like, listen, you know, uh, my time (laughs) is valuable to me. I got to, you know, and then we just kept talking about it more and more and more. And it just got me so excited about it. And here we are. I mean, this was probably a year and a half, almost two years ago. We had that very conversation. And here we are, you know, five days uh, away from uh, from wheels off the ground. It's pretty exciting.
0: How many stops do you have uh, planned for along the way, and how long do you think it'll take to get to Catalina?
3: Well, we're planning, and as as pilots, we all know weather is the ultimate planner, actually. So uh, whether it be wind or thunderstorms or anything, we're stopping about every 300 miles, which makes up for anywhere between 8 to 10 stops. Um, As we get across that we really want to take a lot of time to meet with the people. And we have such great local contacts along the way. So we're pumped about that. But um, I tell, like, friends and family and everyone, I'm telling everyone a month just so they don't, you know, completely miss me too bad. And I told my students, hey, I'm going to be gone for a month. I'm sorry. Um, In all reality, we're thinking more like three weeks, uh, maybe two and a half weeks. And that's with some days off because we really don't want to be pushing it. We don't want to, it's IFR equipped, we're both instrument rated, I'm a CFII, but we really don't want to have to fly IFR, so um, we want to really take our time with it, and that's why I I tell everyone a month, it'll probably be more like three weeks in there.
0: Well, you're planning some uh, events and some uh, chances to kind of see the scenery as you stop at each location, too, aren't you?
3: Definitely, definitely. We have, like I said, awesome context. We actually, Vincent just emailed me today and said, hey, listen, we got a TV interview lined up and some other stuff uh, along the way. Just the people, the the awesome thing is pilots are just great people. Everyone just kind of reached out and was so helpful with everything. Um, All the local attractions, local hotels, um, you know, people who are non-pilots have said, you know, we explained to them our story and they were just so gracious and um it's it's just been so awesome to see how kind people are uh to help us make this a reality it's just been a real blessing
0: well i know one thing you've been doing is uh getting uh promoting to have people actually fund a mile of flying and i think Mm -hmm. it was like 375 is that right per mile
3: right right three dollars and 75 cents a mile so we're actually having people buy miles to help us uh get out there, and that's just kind of something we calculated with fuel. We're going to need an oil change along the way, you know, and then by the way, we have to sleep somewhere and eat something too. So, you know, that's how we ended up calculating all that, and uh, and that's how they've been able to donate. Uh, another really cool thing is we've had a lot of people, um, some big-name places like Cessna and some other places, send us some potential giveaways that we are going to pack up and give away throughout the flight. So the fundraising doesn't just stop the day the wheels leave the ground. We'll be fundraising throughout our flight, which is really going to be uh, exciting.
0: Well, does Cessna give a sci- Skycatcher to give away?
3: You know, that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, they gave us a, uh, a private pilot course, actually, which is uh, real, real beautiful, all uh, DVD-based and everything. So real, real nice. It, it's like a $400 value, so we're going to uh, – be given that away just kind of as a raffle. And we are just uh we're just pumped that everyone's been uh, so good to us.
0: Well cool. Uh what can people do to help out besides just buying miles? Oh that's certainly an important thing to do.
3: Definitely buying miles is very important and you can do that right on the homepage at flyingacrossamerica.com. But even more so than buying miles, if you go on there and click on About Us and About the flight and look at some of our stops. And see if we're coming near you. If there's something you know you can help with, with uh, you know, getting us squared up in a hotel, or you know, uh, helping us with a meal, or you know, a place to put the airplane overnight. You know, just various things like that. Or you know what? Even if you just want to come out and uh, you know show your support and hang out with us, that would be awesome. Another thing we're doing is since I'm an instructor we're going to be offering introductory flights for people who have you know either never flown before or kind of want to get their feet wet with flying um, you know nothing would be cooler to say hey you know I didn't just go flying on a discovery flight I went up with the the guys who are flying across America so we're offering those flights as well based out of the airport we've had a lot of takers on those um, so we're just very excited about that. So we'll probably end up logging some more flight time anyways because we're going to do a ton of Discovery flights and taking some kids up and really just, um, you know, kind of having an, uh, an aviation day at the airport. I know that sounds like a silly idea, but we don't have many of those anymore, you know. So it's really just going to be a fun time to uh, get out to the airport, hang out with us, go on some flights, uh, hear Vincent and I talk. And um, it's going to be some really fun stops we have planned.
0: That sounds really cool. I know the, the closest stop to me is going to be in Georgetown, Texas. And uh, I've kind of got it on my calendar, and I'm going to be watching that and see when you actually uh, get through, according with the weather and all. And hopefully be able to fly down there and meet you.
3: Perfect. That would be wonderful, and I would be uh, more than happy to meet you. I think that would be fantastic, and Vincent would be just as excited. That would be great.
0: There's some good restaurants there, too. I can point out a few of those, too. Hey,
3: hey, that's what we're looking for, you know, that $100 hamburger. So, perfect.
0: Well, where can people find you on the Internet?
3: So they can find out about us and the flight at flyingacrossamerica.com. And uh, also, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. And that's another thing. Um, I hate to keep rambling here, but if people are curious about how they can help, you know, okay, I, I can't donate anything, or what can I do? You know what? Almost everyone out there has a Facebook or has a Twitter account. You know, get on there and post some links. Uh, Tomorrow I've got an awesome video coming out. Um, By the time this goes live, the video is probably already out. So get on there and leave a comment on the video or retweet the video. Put it on your Facebook page. You know, there's so many little things you can do that create that snowball. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, you can be a part of this big message just by doing something that small. And that's something people need to understand. Don't feel like you can't help because you can't donate or you can't do something like that. Just little things like that have really, that's what made this project everything it is. If you go on the website in the guest book, we just have comment after comment after comment of just awesome supporters. So it's the little things that have been going a long way with that project, and that's a theme that's going to stick through it, right? that big snowball.
0: Well, that sounds really cool. And uh, Just uh, really wish I was flying along with you.
3: Well, Stu, I appreciate that so much, and Vincent and I will hopefully be able to see you um, in Georgetown. We'll be looking forward to that, and I'll i will uh, I'll, I'll shoot you an email, let you know how we're doing, and everyone, if you're interested, flyingacrossamerica.com. We will be blogging every single day, twice a day, jump on the newsletter as well, and you can, it'll just feel like watching our flight live with we'll me talking about it so much on there.
0: Well, that sounds great. We sure appreciate you spending the time with us.
3: Well, thank you, Stu. Thank you for having me. And uh, Vincent also sends his regards, and we will look forward to talking with you guys in the future.
0: Well, Stu, this week you've got a featured site for us. What is it?
1: My featured site this week is uh, www.flightgear.org. And. this is a, a website that's dedicated um to an open source flight sim which is free and has a wonderful modding community and uh it's it's uh they just released their 2.0 version which is on par with X Plane and Microsoft Flight Sim 10. Um the aircraft models and everything are just absolutely beautiful and they have um, with, because of the modding community, they have hundreds of different types of aircraft that you can download and, and fly in that are all the cockpits and sounds and, and the outside animations are all fully rendered. Um, so they have, a uh, um, over 20,000 real world airports, uh, with full scenery, um, correct terrain elevation. So the runway slope correctly, um, They have uh, the airports and terrain for um, North and South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, and Australia with uh, more terrain that you can download. You can actually purchase um, a three-DVD set with all the scenery and and everything on them for three DVDs, Um, and it's relatively cheap. It's a lot cheaper than Microsoft Flight Sim 10, Um, but uh, they have all the... The traffic, railroads, and cities. Um, the only thing it's really lacking is is a solid multiplayer. Uh, they do have multiplayer, um, but it's on a small map, um, and it's it doesn't work. In my experience, it, it doesn't work very well. But so then again, so does Microsoft Flight Sim Ten has really horrible multiplayer over that GameSpy network. So. Um, uh, having said that, this thing is completely free. I highly recommend that you download it. It's a great way to practice your instrument approaches and uh, getting them in a part of this uh, this modding community.
0: Does it support the uh, common hardware like the, the SayTek or the CH products?
1: Uh, yes, it does. Uh, I fly using my uh, SayTek yoke and, and foot pedals. Um, you have to do a little setting up and going into options, but the... Uh, uh, it's not like just straight-up plug-and-play with Microsoft Flight Sim with the Saitek controllers,
0: but you can do it, absolutely. Great, and that was www.flightgear.org. We have a product review this week, and it's from Mike with the I Want One iPad.
2: <laughs> and uh, uh, the iPad, uh, you know, I... First off, uh, my my review begins with the whole reason I bought the iPad really was the intention to apply, use flight because I was so impressed with that application uh, on my iPhone that it it was a gimme that it would be even better uh, on an iPad. And so I pre-ordered the 3G iPad uh, for uh, the specific purpose of the fact that the 3G uh, has a GPS chip, which makes... The, the software even better uh, than it would be without the GPS chip. So you, I think flight with uh, any iPad, even the, the Wi-Fi iPad, is pretty powerful. But it, when you combine it with a 3G iPad uh, with that ability to use um, the GPS, uh, you really have a powerful tool. So my, my first impression was, I, and this is going to sound awful, it was kind of a disappointment. And the reason I say that is I have, was very used to the interface of uh the iPhone I was just expecting a bigger app uh of the four flight that basically behaved, worked the same way it did on my iPhone. I was so used to that interface, I expected that hey, that's gonna be exactly what I want. I'll, I'll, I'll immediately no learning curve, no changes. Uh so that but that initial disappointment was quickly turned into delight because uh now that I'm used to the new interfa- user interface, uh I'm very happy and it made perfect sense. You they have more screen. You don't need to be constrained to the size. Uh, so, uh, rearranging the way you get to the information, rearranging the icons uh, was actually a logical choice. And and now I understand it now that I'm using it more. Uh, the the things I like about it, obviously, uh, as a an IFR person uh, practicing, I really like the fact that I can grab my IFR plates and and. Just to, when I'm studying, I can use it as a student, uh, a tool to go through low-level charts, go through uh, approaches, and, and it's much faster than turning to paper charts. Uh, when you're in, in the cockpit with paper, you have, uh, particularly if you're using TERPs uh, plates that are in bound book form, you know you have to tab the, the approaches you're planning on doing. Those tabs, uh, you know depending on how your knee board or what your clipping situation is, how you keep the page open to the page you're running, uh, when you need to flip pages from, you know, one procedure to another procedure, uh, keeping track of that, the number of glances you have to look down to make sure you're on the right page, all that gets eliminated by having a, an electronic flight board that has those plates. Uh, and it's easier to toggle between approach A, approach B, approach C, uh, departure procedures, uh, another powerful aspect of it is the weather uh, ability to get lots of different weather between your uh, winds aloft, TAFs, METARs, comparing weather. So when you're doing flight planning, uh, the iPad and ForeFlight is, is an amazing tool. Uh, when it was first released, the, the, one of the major missing components was flight planning and flight briefing, which was available on the iPhone. Uh so it was kind of um, when I it was missing from the iPad app I was kind of surprised but uh they have already updated it and added that feature so the 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 responsiveness of the developers to see that there's missing components and add those components in quickly offer an update uh was is an impressive thing and then also obviously the price is a is a big thing uh the fact that I, my iP- iPhone version, they basically viewed me as a loyal customer and therefore did not have to pay any additional for an iPad version. I just basically uh, have one paid software that runs on my iPhone. But the iPhone version is a different version. It's the old version, and it still works the way I, it used to. Uh, but the uh, iPad version has all the features you would you would want and expect. And uh, so double thumbs up on it. Uh, Downsides in terms of the one thing is, you know, this is first-generation technology. Uh, both the iPad, it's not like there've been iPads before, and likewise, ForeFlight had to do quick retrofitting and redevelopment to get the uh, ForeFlight to work on on in a new platform. And I have experienced a few lockups, uh, which means you know, you can't make it your primary source of, of information at this point. It's not certified or as an EFB, an electronic flight bag. Uh, it's really made to be one more piece of situational awareness, so you still want to have your Terps charts uh, there and have the, the pages flagged that you need. Uh, but to be honest, I, the lockups have been very, very minimal, and it, the, the iPad boots so fast, and or if you just go out of the, uh, the application and come back in and relaunch... You, you You can quickly navigate back to the place you were really faster than you can flip to the, your backup charts so while it did i've had a few of those, it's been an uncommon experience. I don't know what the situation is or I report it as a bug or but I can't get it to replicate. I think it's when I've pushed too many things too fast but it it, re, it it's only done it a couple times out of uh, the months i uh, the, the the amount of time I've had it here so So anyway, that's my review of ForeFlight.
0: How is the uh, screen uh, during daylight situation? Is it still readable in the cockpit?
2: You know, I have found it readable in every cockpit situation I've been in, and I've been in pretty bright light. Uh, I haven't been in all different lighting angles. Uh, If I'm out in the open sun, uh, it can be a tough read. It's not uh, really a, a great, or it's, if you're in open sun, you're going to be hunting for an angle. But, uh, you know, in general, I would refer, refer to my cockpit as being in the shade. Uh, you know, there are times, and, and if the, even when I'm in the angles I've flown in so far, I've never had it where I had difficulty reading it. Uh, and I also, uh, I guess this is, might be even a secondary shout-out, and I, I can't remember the manufacturer, but they, they do manufacture a knee kneeboard uh, that holds the iPad and i i I bought one of those uh and and it's really nice because you have the knee pad or or knee board that you can keep all your stuff that you do want to write do handwriting and writing uh frequencies and winds and all the different stuff you you take your notes on but uh i in fact i don't know that it would be it's not that it wouldn't be useful it's just a lot more convenient when it is strapped to your knee. You could do that. You could do that primitively, but I went ahead and bought the, the the knee board that was made out of aluminum. And that product is really well done. It has pads, and I'll I'll put in the show notes the the manufacturer because it it really was well designed. A footnote to them would be: I, I wish they left went ahead and had it cover the entire iPad because it, it's a little short as a. a where the clipboard part of the, the kneeboard, where you, the writing surface is not as big as the full uh, iPad. And I actually would like it to be bigger than, than it is. But that'd be just an. But still, it makes it very, very usable piece of equipment.
0: Well, thanks for that. Uh, makes me want one even more.
1: <laughs> Emails. Oh, I love our new bumpers. Well, anyway, uh, we have an email. It's uh, from a listener named Paul. He says, I'm a listener of the Pilot's Journey podcast and enjoy the program. Recently, I went back and re-listened to episode 13, in which Pilot Stu uh, talked about his uh, commercial training. I recently earned my commercial certificate and was reliving with you all the maneuvers I was doing last summer leading up to my check ride, especially the part about the power-off 180. Question, you mentioned that if you dump flaps as you flare and approach your spot, that you will hit it each time, at least for the plane you were in. Do you mean to go from no flaps to full flaps? I think that is what you mean. But if so, I would think that by lowering the flaps to full, that you would float as a result. No? I have to try this in the Cardinal. I fly. I trained and took the checkride in a 182, but my favorite plane in my club is a Cardinal. I recently tried to practice spot landings in it for the first time and was consistently long, but that was before I heard about your tip. We'll give it a try, and I'd almost think that raising the flaps would make you fall on the spot rather than lowering them. Of course, I'd only do that if I was inches above the ground in ground effect, I have little time in a Super Cub, and in that plane, we raise the flaps just inches off the ground to put it on the spot to keep it from porpoising. Be interested in your thoughts if you have the time. Thanks for the great podcast, Paul. So I have a lot of a lot of comments for this. He says almost think about raising the flaps if you uh, would rather you'd fall and then hit your spot rather than lowering them. When you're on a check ride, or at least when you're on a check ride, I don't ever recommend this, but especially if you're on a check ride, don't ever don't ever raise the flaps when you're just when you're in ground effect. Only ever lower them. And uh, make that really good practice. The landing can be hard, depending on the aircraft you're in, the landing can be hard enough to where you can hurt the aircraft. Um, And I've seen it happen before, especially in the Cessna. So, uh, you know, once the flaps are down and you're committed to landing, keep them down. Um, If not, do a go around, raise the flaps, clean up the airplane, come back again, re-enter final, and then set the flap settings that you want. Um, But don't just change the configuration of the aircraft right before touchdown in the uh... uh, or clean up the aircraft right before touchdown, especially if you're in a complex aircraft. I don't know if this Cardinal is complex but um, a lot of geared up incidents have happened that way too um, just out of habit. So anyway, uh, what do you mean by dump flaps? Well, uh, actually that's exactly what I mean. I mean going from zero flaps to full flaps uh, in ground effect. And um, he is correct. You will float as a a result. And I don't really think float is what he meant here. Um, uh, You will uh, balloon, I think, is a better term where you'll actually start climbing because you're increasing the angle of attack in the aircraft, which will make the aircraft want to climb um, almost out of ground effect. So... The aircraft, if you don't touch the controls, the aircraft will balloon and want to climb out of ground effect. So what you have to do is you kind of have to fight it a little bit, put a little forward, just a little bit forward pressure on the front yoke to hold your attitude, um, not your attitude, but to hold your altitude uh, right above the runway and ground effect as the airspeed bleeds off. And as the airplane begins to slow down, then that pressure starts becoming back pressure for a flare, and, and you'll hit your, you'll hit your spot. Um, you can uh you'll hit the spot a little bit fast. you can probably and a little bit at a at a flatter attitude so it's um uh, it's not a normal landing, but uh, um, hey, it's but the point is to
2: hit the numbers, right but
1: the point is is to hit your your spot. so uh let's just start from part one of this maneuver you're in the you're in the pattern, you're beam your touchdown point that you selected. Power comes to idle, and we're going to keep it at idle until we touch our spot. You're going to put the aircraft immediately in best glide. And once it's in best glide, you're going to start slowly maneuvering towards the runway. Uh, You're going to probably cut your, uh, well, I recommend it, that you cut your base to final really short. And you'll probably come in, uh, uh, well, I, I guarantee you'll come in really high over the runway maybe even really high over the numbers. So at this point, I recommend a forward slip, forward slip it straight in, pitch for 80 knots in the forward slip, cut that that altitude, uh, bring it in. Once you're in, roll out of the slip right into ground effect, hold it in ground effect. Once you're over the numbers, dump the flaps, just go from uh, zero to 30 if you're in the Cessna, 30 degrees. Um, and as bright as you can feel it, the ballooning, a little bit forward pressure on the yoke to keep it right above, uh, uh, the runway and ground effect. As the airplane begins to slow and it wants to descend, start pulling back. Now, this is where you're looking at your touchdown point and you have to gauge how far it is. I pull back a little bit on my yoke. We're holding, but the airplane is descending. Am I going to descend before or, or, uh, before my touchdown point? If so, add a little bit more back pressure, keep it in ground effect. If it looks like I'm going to descend and hit my target, I'm just going to hold that back pressure and let the airplane just descend and hit that point. Now, um, it doesn't take a lot of back pressure because you're already at 80 knots when you roll out uh, above the runway. So um, you'll generally... Uh, wind up, especially if you have a good headwind, you'll generally wind up in a flat attitude when landing. Uh, the nose wheel still won't touch, but it won't be the normal, uh, nose up attitude to where you can't see the runway over the cowling of the aircraft. Uh, You'll probably still be able to see the horizon a little bit over the cowling of the aircraft. Um, but, uh, other than that that's how that's how you do a power off 180 and hit the spot every time in a in a Cessna and even in the Cardinal I've done it No, I haven't done it in a Cardinal. I've done it in a 182 Turbo, which I imagine it's more powerful than the Cardinal. So uh if in I can Car- do it in the one, eight, 182 Turbo, I know I can do it in the Cardinal.
2: The Cardinals are are a, a different the wing is different. They fly a little more efficiently, so they may not bleed speed quite as as efficiently because because the wing is efficient, they may not bleed speed as as well. I don't know. Uh, that and I don't I don't really know if the cardinal may have forty degrees of
1: flaps because I know that there's a lot of one um, fifties and the arrow bats and the uh, there's a lot of Cessnas that can go to to forty and beyond degrees of flaps.
2: So, so, Stu, did you try it in the in the cardinal? You fly fly periodically.
0: I've tried it that way. Um, I always tend to come in a little high. When I do that, so I'm really hitting it hard, slipping, and I usually end up throwing the flaps in during the slip. Ooh. Yeah, you got to be careful yeah, you doing can that. Do that.
1: Well, you can do that in the Cessna, sorry. Uh, the, so you can slip a Cessna with flaps in, so I don't know what I'm, I'm thinking. Uh, the, well, uh, some
0: of those 172s, I think, are uh, yeah, placarded against
1: it. Yeah, I was going to say, the key is to know what, what the placard says and whether you're yeah, in the airplane. Read, yeah, read your cannot. POH. Yeah, I've definitely flown airplanes that say you can only slip for 10 seconds With flaps extended and and things like that, so
2: slip with flaps but not full flaps, right? Yeah, every 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 airplane's different. That's one of those, but yeah, the car. So you you have tried that, and I know some examiners that
1: don't like it, but yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, what I've ended up doing for just my own comfort, really, is that on short final, when you kind of get a feel for how high I'm I'm going to be, and no question I'm going to be making the runway, that's when I usually throw in full flaps. And uh, while they're coming down, I'll start the slip, but a lot more gently than if I were to wait and do the flaps later.
1: So are you finding that you're landing a little bit long or short, Uh, or are you hitting your target?
0: I'm probably about 50% of the time, a little long. Uh, The other time I'm within tolerances. Uh, I rarely come in short because I start my turn to final almost immediately. If you're, if, you're coming in,
1: if you're coming in a little bit too long, you may be flaring too much. You may be flaring a little too much. And uh, try letting the aircraft land a little bit at a flatter ad- attitude. Um, still protect that nose gear. Uh, and don't let it touch. If it does, then you are going to go long, and you're going to have to come in a little bit slower next time. But, but you don't have to be – you don't have to hear the stall warning horn, essentially, when you hit that, that, that spot. Um you can hit it a little bit flat if able.
0: See, I haven't tried uh doing what you're talking about, I, I have tried to make it pretty much a normal touchdown. And mm-hmm. you're describing is a little different than normal and a little more oh, yeah. probably. Oh
1: absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely not a normal landing what I'm describing. <laughs> yeah, see the problem is is that those Cessna's are so they're so efficient without you know, they have a a great uh, wing that they can just float in ground effect forever at less than twenty knots, you know, so um when you 're holding that yoke to your chest it 'll just keep going and you'll you 'll overshoot your spot, so you kind of almost have to let it uh land a little bit flat, so as the airplane begins to sink in ground effect and you pull the yoke to hold your attitude to bring that nose up oh, not hold your attitude, I keep saying that hold your altitude above the runway you're in, 're increasing the nose up attitude <laughs> uh to To hold that spot, and then the airplane wing stall, and the airplane smoothly touches down. but if you're trying to hit a spot, you have to gauge your rate of descent and ground effect, and okay, this is where it's going to hit it i'm not touching I'm just gonna hold the yoke here, and I'm not going to add any more back pressure on the yoke and it will hit and um so and with if you're using thousand foot markers, if your runway has thousand foot markers then it it becomes even easier because you have a that hunt you have an easily identifiable 100 feet on the runway than you can pick
0: well thanks paul for that letter um and mike we have another yeah just a, this was a real quick letter uh uh
2: from uh kevin in uh painfield and everett washington uh heard about the asr approaches on the la- latest podcast or it was one of the a couple podcasts ago uh whidbey island naval air station uh, won't be able to get in there it's uh so it the ASR in Oak Harbor, however, is one that you can fly. Uh, try it soon because the Whidbey Island Approach Controller told several Seattle pilots that the Air Safety Foundation and the Air Safety Foundation that the FAA is planning on deactivating ASR approach. So uh, so if I want to do those, the, the, both the Whidbey Island Air Station and the ASR at Oak Harbor, I think, are both managed at a Whidbey approach. Uh, so that's what he's talking about is that that one's getting phased out so you know smoke them while you got them i guess
1: <laughs> yeah you'll find that most of these asrs are actually at um air bases like this um we have a uh, uh the Carswell joint navy air base here in fort worth uh, shout out to lockheed martin is where they build the f-35 joint strike fighter uh but the um uh, they have an ASR approach, but because of all their military training and stuff that they do out there, uh, no one's allowed to go in that Delta airspace and practice the approach. However, uh, we have been bugging them so much about it to train out there for the ASR approaches that they have uh, uh, picked like uh, three or four hours on a Saturday to where they aren't doing training and that they would be more than happy to accept our ASR approaches. So between certain hours on a certain day out of the week, you can go out there and do ASR approaches. And I I think that's very, uh, well, that's very nice of them (laughs) to allow us to do that there at their base.
0: Shoutouts. Anyone have a shoutout they'd like to
2: make? I'll go for it. I'm just putting my list together right now. Uh, I'll, I'll definitely do a shout-out to Del Van Orden. Uh, he's m- the DPE, uh, de- de- designated pilot examiner, uh, tough but fair. Uh, and, uh, boy, this is going to sound like I'm sucking up, so pass me next time, okay? Uh, <laughs> I want my three hundred
1: dollars back. No. You
2: know, well, it, the nice thing is, it, it, the the next flight is uh, is cheaper. Uh, it, so it was three hundred bucks, and then uh, the the retake or is only a hundred. So it won't be as painful, uh, and uh, and obviously is is a little bit cheaper. So that's a, that's a nice thing. So that's one big shout out. And I'm going to do a shout out to co-host CFI Stu. If only I had listened. If only oh. I had listened. <laughs> 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 and, and to anybody and then the, the last shout out definitely <laughs> is uh, to those who have busted their check rides or who will bust a check ride at some point in the future hang in there uh it 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 takes your it it it, it definitely knocks your ego down uh, a notch or two uh but it could save your life that you uh got your you were that you were busted and not passed along of of all the places, we don't want great inflation. We don't want it with our uh, designated pilot examiners. So, so good on them for flunking a, a good portion of us. And and the good answer is, I can tell that I'm among. I am not the only person who has not passed a check ride. And uh, I think I actually have good company. Uh, uh, anybody who I get to see at Oshkosh uh, uh, will have to uh, bump knuckles for all who have busted a check ride.
0: Well, I've got a couple of shout-outs. Uh, the first one is to Robert Sigliano of the uh, New Pilot Pod Blog, and uh, he's, we've exchanged some emails, and he's uh, actually played our promo a few times, and I think he's got a great show. If you aren't listening to that, add that to your subscription list on iTunes. Uh, another one is to Mike Flies. Uh, that's Mike Daniels of the Mile High Flyers podcast. He and his beautiful wife, uh, LV Moxie Girl on Twitter, uh, gave me some great hospitality when I was visiting Las Vegas a few weeks ago. And uh, just shout out to them. Say thanks for the uh, the great evening. Very good.
1: Uh, I have, again, I'm, I'm lacking on shout outs. I'm sorry. Well, you should shout out to yourself for being such a good
2: CFI <laughs> that I should have listened I'm to.
1: Not, I'm not used to all this praise. <laughs> I don't know what to do, what to do with it. I don't uh, want to come off acting like an, an humble person. I, I, how about I do this? How about I'll give a shout-out to our uh, Facebook page. Um, Please uh, come and uh, uh, join our Facebook page. Can you hear the dog?
2: Only when he's barking. (laughs) For real? Can you hear him, though? I can, but it's not. It's it's really just in the background. Don't worry. He's going to go beat the dog.
1: (laughs) I will kill you, dog!
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: To listening to the Pilot's Journey Podcast. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, or experiences. You can reach us at our website at www.pilot'sjourneypodcast.com. You can also get your comments played on the show by emailing an MP3 or leaving a voicemail at 469 277 2359. You can follow me as Pilot Stew, that's Stu, that's S T U, on Twitter, Facebook, or MyTransponder.com. You
1: can reach me on Twitter or my transponder as CFI Stew, that's S T E
2: W, also at CFI com. And you can follow me on Twitter or my transponder as ID Mike or at uh, November
0: 225 Mike.com. Or you can follow us collectively on Twitter or Facebook as Pilots Journey. Subscribe to the Pilot's Journey podcast in iTunes, the Zoom Marketplace, or at thevoicesinyourhead.com. Also, please consider leaving your comments or rankings so that others can find the show.
1: Please note that this podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your own qualified flight instructor before attempting anything discussed in
0: this
2: podcast. And remember to enjoy the journey.
0: Studio Productions and 1 mic